We'll be considering Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. You know, the best moments of my day very typically are the first few minutes when I get to walk into my house after uh, my day to see my wife and kids. Because my kids are still at an age where they're sort of enthusiastic about dad coming home. And they're in sort of what I would refer to as kind of the wonder phase of life. Everything still basically amazes my children. The simplest of things can blow them away. My three-year-old, Luke, is no exception at all to this rule. And uh, earlier on this spring, uh, I remember distinctively being greeted at the door by Luke, who, who, who had this... This unquenchable urgency about him. Daddy, Daddy, you know, come see, come see, you know, grabbing my hand. What in the world could it be? And he takes me out, and apparently his older sisters had introduced him to the wonder that is sidewalk chalk. You remember this is from your childhood? Sidewalk chalk. You can just color and design and draw and do whatever, and it just rinses right off with a hose, right? And, of course, my son had spent most of the afternoon, you know, practicing and you know, building this beautiful powdery sort of um, design for me to come in and see and that he wanted me to look at. Sidewalk chalk can hold wonder for a three-year-old. It doesn't do much for us, though, does it? But what I want you to notice tonight is this simple principle, and that is the connection between wonder and action. Have you noticed that the things in your life that captivate you the most, that that grab your attention and your imagination the most, are the very things that spur you into the most action? You know what I'm talking about? In other words, the more blown away you are by by a sight... Uh, by a view, by a picture of something, perhaps an insight that someone passed on to you, uh, an experience that you have, perhaps even a new relationship that you're excited about. The more commitment that it demands, the more urgency it commands. We move into action whenever something captures our imagination. Watch the people that you know or watch yourself when you fall in love. You know, the people that are the most in love and captivated are also the most busy, are they not? They spend their time plotting on ways in which they can somehow be with or do things for their beloved. And I want to suggest to you tonight, and honestly, throughout the entire semester, that this is absolutely essential to your humanity. Whether you consider yourself tonight a religious person or not, there is something in us, there is a tendency to move when moved. And so those of you who have been around, been around RUF for a while will know that in RUF we feel very convicted about the fact that there's a lot of people in our world who have Christianity quite backwards. Because we look at this idea of people who are full of wonder and full of joy and seem to be inspired by the truths that they're hearing in the Scripture and in the Bible. And we long for that kind of intensity. We wish that we had that kind of meaning in us. And what we end up doing is, is we get to work. We wish we had the wonder, and so therefore we go to work. We watch joyful people as if it were through a glass, wishing that it was us, but it doesn't matter how much we do, we never seem to be as inspired as those around us who really get religious are. What's the problem? Well, it's because we have it backwards. You see, the Scripture is coming to us to say that the order is everything. God comes to His people and says, Look, I'm going to do something amazing in you and for you. And it's on the basis of that that we pursue the things that He calls us to be and to do. 
But to be quite honest with you, most of the Christians that I know who come onto the campus after being involved in Christianity on some superficial level in high school come to this place either bored or disillusioned with Christianity. And you come to the college campus and suddenly you're encountering real wonders. Are you not? Sex, knowledge, lofty ideas, influence, a sense of belonging. And suddenly Christianity is abandoned very quickly. Not necessarily because it failed to work for you, but that because it just failed to impress you. I'm convinced that for most of the people on this campus who have found Christianity so irrelevant, it's that because they look at it as being cosmically unimportant. It just doesn't do anything to me. It doesn't move me the way in which it does other person. Look, if you connect with any of that, the book of Revelation is for you. John has seen something in a vision that has blown him away and completely transformed him with an overwhelming intensity. And behind that intensity and behind the wonder that he saw, he is urgent to see something happen in his people. And that's what the book of Revelation is. It's an invitation to everyone to come and to see what it is that he saw so that we can experience the wonder and the transformation of life that honestly, if most of us admitted, we all really wish we had. But we've got to do some preparation first. And that's what I wanted to do tonight in introduction to this series to the book of Revelation. I think tonight we have to look at the way in which John gives us this vision. And look a little bit about what this vision is going to look like. And so therefore tonight I want to consider three things with you. We want to consider first of all Revelation's controls. We want to look at Revelation's aim. And then finally we want to look at Revelation's topic. The controls, its aim, and its topic. First of all, controls. Look, I have a huge barrier in front of me this particular semester in order for you to hear what John is saying to you about the urgency of wonder. And that is, I've got to find a way to keep you from reading the book of Revelation as if it is some code book about secret future events. For about the last 150 to say 200 some odd years, the popular, book of, the popular view of the book of Revelation has been to read it as if it's sort of an early warning system for future end time events. And the guiding assumption is that John was seeing futuristic wonders that his primitive mind could not grasp or describe. And so he began to use these fantastic symbolic images to describe the things that he saw. I grew up under that sort of teaching for all of my childhood and um, high school and college age years. And to be honest with you, I can testify with you that the interpretations that come from looking at Revelation from that view become a maze of speculation. It's amazing how almost with every single passing decade, a brand new spate of, of books comes out about the latest of events that team, seem to prove the fact that Revelation is being fulfilled in our very eyes. And there's been no attempt to do this more than the wild-eyed popularity of the Left Behind series, one of the best-selling book series uh, in publishing history, quite frankly. Um, and to be honest with you, I want to be as fair as I can uh, to uh, Jenkins and LaHaye. Because the two of them are committed to an interpretive principle that I think is a good thing. And that is they want to take the Bible literally. 
They want to believe the Bible is literally true. They don't want people looking at the Bible and sort of uh, spiritualizing it into utter irrelevancy to where suddenly Adam and Eve are these mythic figures. And, you know, Moses is really just sort of a figurative idea for the leader of the people of Israel. And before too long, Jesus is really something that people just kind of made up in their imaginations. And for that, they're to be commended. But here's the problem with that when you begin to take it wholesale. There are parts of the Bible that were never intended to be taken literally. You say, well, which parts are those less? Well, it's the parts that the Bible tells us that it wasn't supposed to be taken literally. And for that reason, we have to come and set a series of controls, ideas that will control our, even our glance at this book. And it brings us to control number one. The best interpretive principle for the book of Revelation is not we're going to take it literally wherever it's possible. But rather what we need to do is to say we're not going to take any concept in the book of Revelation at face value. Rather, we're going to look and see whether or not that concept is mentioned in another place in the Bible. Does that make sense? The great reformers used to refer to this as the great interpretive principle of the Bible. Scripture interprets Scripture. God is His own interpreter, we believe, if He's going to express Himself in that way. Look, there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. Commentators tell us that there are approximately 518 references to earlier Scriptures in those 404 verses. In other words, the book of Revelation is built upon everything that came before. And we're not going to try to interpret the book by assuming it's talking about something in the future. Rather, we're going to see how that concept was used in the rest of the Bible and let that guide our interpretation. Does that make sense? That is a huge principle. But it brings us to control number two. Because you don't look at the book of Revelation before you realize that this is a very unique way in which John is speaking to us. But it's a way in which his original hearers would have been immediately familiar. In other words, there was a peculiar type of literature he was using, a literary device, if you will, that we call apocalyptic literature. Now, don't let that word sort of throw you off. It actually comes from the root word that we have the trans- that's translated for us, Revelation. The Greek word behind the word revelation is apocalypsis, which means, by the way, to reveal something, not to conceal something. Most of the time when I read the book of Revelation as a child, I felt like things were being concealed from me, not revealed to me. But the idea was simply that when people took on to write in this particular manner, they used fantastic images, highly symbolic images in order to draw powerful reactions out of the people who read it. And the truth of the matter is, is his original hearers knew this literature. They knew what he was doing. And I'll give you an example. Next week we're going to look at a story about how John's first vision, where he sees a man walking through lampstands. Well, right after that, it looks, uh, the, the voice looks and says, here's what the lampstands are. In other words, he's, not, he's saying, I'm not intending you to take these lampstands literally as if somewhere up in heaven there is Jesus walking through literal golden lampstands with uh, churches on them. He's saying it's a symbol. It's an idea for something. We're going to return to that one over and over and over again. But John is telegraphing to us that he's being highly symbolic. And you've got to get used to reading it that way. Which brings us finally to control number three. Control number three basically is, is something that's all throughout the book. 
All throughout the book, John keeps talking about the events in which he's describing as being those which must soon take place. Now look, y'all, the word soon meant the exact same thing 2,000 years ago when this book was penned that it does today. He meant that it was coming soon. In other words, I believe, and most of the interpreters that we're going to draw upon this semester, believe that the events that John is describing happened during the lifetime of his hearers. Did you catch that? I'm going to return to this over and over again this semester. In other words, when you're looking at the book of Revelation, a great interpretive principle is to think first century first. John is describing real events that happen in those people's lifetimes. What else can the word soon mean? Those three controls I'm going to return to over and over again this semester. Um, so we'll return to that whole thing. But we have to mention them now just to begin the process. But that brings up a good question and my second point. What then is Revelation's aim? And what I mean by that is, why would John do it that way? I mean, what gives? Why would you all of a sudden decide to speak in this particular manner? Why would he communicate in this way? Well, I think Eugene Peterson puts it best when he says that John, the Apostle John, is not just a theologian, but he's also a poet. You see, John is coming to give a revelation to us that is not simply there to describe or explain something to us. Rather, what he's doing is he's trying to make something happen to you while you read him. You see, poetry is not the thing that we use to get objective explanation from. We use poetry to incite our imagination, do we not? Uh, what, he, what Peterson says is it makes an image of reality in such a way as to invite our participation in it. We do not have more information after we read a poem. We have more experience. It is not an examination of what happens, but an immersion in what happens. That's what John is doing. John is wanting to draw you in to a beautiful story that is parallel to our own. Think of it this way, if you will. Why is it? Why is it that Aslan draws little Lucy Pevensey in through the wardrobe and into the wonderful land of Narnia? Why is it that Lewis Carroll writes Alice into a little uh, rabbit chase down into the hole and finding a whole new world? Why do the authors do that? Well, the answer is because there they discover a parallel universe, a parallel world where there's something different going on. That when they go and see that world, they're absolutely transformed. They can't look at anything else the same after it. They come out of these worlds with new eyes. Look, when Joyce Kilmer looks and says, I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree, she means that she's not just looking at a trunk and branches and leaves and bark. It means that she's seeing something beyond the tree, something within the tree. And so John is giving us a picture of just that parallel world, right? But here's the deal. It's not a world that's like what the fairy tale worlds are like. You know, a land that's far, far away. Rather, this is a world he's describing that is as near to you as you can imagine. All around us. It's God's space among all of us. Pervading, moving. It's what the Bible refers to as heaven. And sadly, for most of us, we think of heaven as being away. Like up there. I don't know, beyond Alpha Centauri or something like that. Heaven is not away. Heaven is here among us. It's God's space among us. 
And what John had happened to him was the Holy Spirit drew back the veil and he began to see the world through the eyes of God's absolute transcendence. And the visions that he gives to us are not so much meant to inform us as they are to evoke wonder and trembling in us. I love it that this is the last book of the Bible. I love that fact. Peterson says, you know, by the time you get to Revelation, you have all the data that you need. Everything that is needed for salvation and the life of faith is in the Bible in absolute full. In other words, we're not inadequately informed about the truth of Scripture. But it is well within the realm of possibility that you could get to the end of the Bible and through familiarity or through fatigue just be absolutely bored with it. And suddenly begin to miss the splendors that are all around us. Um, Anglican commentator Michael Wilcox says this, When God's children had had enough of reciting systematic theology, He then gives them a gorgeous picture book to look at, which is, different, which is in a different way, just as educational. Richard Baucom says this, The world seen from this transcendent, transcendent perspective is a new kind of symbolic world into which John's readers are taken as his artistry creates it for them. But really, it's not another world, he says. It is John's readers' concrete day-to-day -day world as seen from a heavenly perspective. Do you catch that? The book of Revelation is not distant from you. It will describe at every turn realities that are immediately accessible to you and for some of you in your own personal experience. How tragic that we put it to the periphery for the experts to understand this book. Look, John has no intention of taking you away <laughs> into some sort of heavenly world or in some sort of you know, transcendental meditation. He wants you to see the heaven around you and the impact of it in you. To be honest with you, this action happens to you all the time. Happens to you all the time. One day you're just walking to class, taking notes in class, texting your friends furiously back and forth, being bored with your life, right? But then, gentlemen, she tells you she loves you. And suddenly, it's a little bit different. It's not just a walk to class. It's a stroll through, through gorgeous trees that seem taller than they were before, you know? The sky was never quite as blue as it is today. And to be honest with you, the, the class you were sitting in was not quite as long because you knew that you were going to get to see her that night. Look, what happened to you in that case? Your imagination was lit. That's what John wants you to do. To come and give you the same world in which you live in, but with whole new eyes. Don't you want that? I do. Because the truth of the matter is, after enough experiences you've had in your life and as much as I have, the world can be awfully gray and awfully sad and awfully boring. But John wants for you at the end of this semester to be awash in wonder, in life-giving, vision-transforming wonder, and to see the world as it really is unflinchingly ruled sometimes by horrific, frightening visions, but at the same time by absolute gorgeous beauties of wonder all around us. One of my favorite movies is Babette's Feast, best foreign film, 1986. 
And at the very end of the movie, the sort of pharisaical sisters who live in this tiny village are transformed by this glorious meal prepared for them by the wonderful Babette. More expensive than they could ever imagine. And at the very end of the movie, they walk outside and they begin to look up at the sky. And one of the sisters, Philippa, looks and says, It seems like the stars have moved closer tonight. To which her sister Martine looks and says, Perhaps they move closer every night. That's what John wants to happen to you as you read the book of Revelation. One last thought before we close. So what's the book about? What am I going to find? Is there something out there that could have that much imagination-blowing power? What is Revelation's topic, thirdly? Well, it's very simple. It's the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was talking to somebody about this series just last night. And they were talking about the fact that before they ever looked into the book of Revelation, the way in which we're going to this semester, when you considered Revelation, it was almost as if all bets were off. You know, you look at Revelation, it's like, well, you know, everything else from Genesis to Jude is fairly understandable, but Revelation, that's for the experts or the people that sort of know about that sort of stuff. But all of a sudden, what I want you to come away with this semester is the understanding that the Bible, that the book of Revelation is just about what the rest of the Bible is about. It's about Jesus. It's not like the 4th of July, just some kind of exploding wonder, some sort of uh, uh, firework that goes off in the sky but suddenly fades away, but a lasting, eternal wonderment that transforms people's minds and people's souls. And John tells us about it. He says it's a book, it is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which means it's by Him and that it's about Him. And at the very end of it, he looks and says that he is to us the Alpha and Omega. In other words, Jesus says, I am coming to transform all of your beginnings. I'm here to transform all of the background that you look back on your life and say was hideous. I'm here to overturn all the verdicts that were spoken against you by parents that were just as immature as you were and are. I'm coming in to transform all of the assumptions that you've made about your life that now you're wondering whether or not are really true. I come to be your alpha. I come to transform all the mistakes that you made from the time in which you came on this campus and the way in which it seemed to sweep you away with the tide. But he says, I also want to be your omega. In other words, I don't just want to be your beginnings, but I want to be your endings as well. I want to be what you're aiming for. I want to give you a new hope that actually you can really change. That all of the despair that you heap upon your own conscience day in and day out from all kinds of sources can be transformed by a vision of a true future and of a true hope. Maybe not in this world, but certainly in the next. And Alpha and Omega wrapped up in one small little package that's right there in verse 5. How is it possible... Is there something to this? John looks and tells us. Because he says, There we would find to Him who loves us, and here it is, and has freed us from our sins by His blood. You see what John is saying? John is saying that on the cross of Jesus Christ, there is sufficient wonder to blow you away for generation after generation. Something that even the angels long to look into. And if they do, there's enough for you to consider a semester with Revelation.
This is my little yearly plea to stick with me through this, y'all. Stick with me through this. If for no other reason, just for curiosity's sake, to see if maybe there might be something in this book that won't do what most other Bible studies have done to you up until this time, and that is lay on your heart with a dull clank. Could there be something here that really could capture your imagination? Is it possible that even though for those of you that are looking saying less, I've heard all that. I've heard all that before. Have you really? But have you seen a picture of it? That, my friends, is John's invitation to you. And it's mine to you as well. I wonder who would dare. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, we pray that by Your Spirit You would indeed make us curious. If nothing else, just curious. I don't live that kind of life. I don't experience that kind of wonder day to day. But I know enough about myself to know that I was built to. And for some reason, I'm absolutely encrusted with my sin. My conscience gets hardened. And it's almost as if daily, hourly, I need to find something that can actually be counted on. That is thrilling enough to light up my soul that is beautiful enough to get me excited. Is there something here? Holy Spirit, I pray that You would do that in us and for us tonight. For every single soul in this room, would You grant us the joy of seeing what it is that John saw? Would You do that in this place? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.